Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, we're going to tell you about the disappearance of Amy and Scott Fandel. So pour yourselves a strong cup of joe, and let's dive in. Scott and Amy Fandel were a brother and sister who were living with their mom, Margaret, in Sterling, Alaska, in the Kenai Peninsula in the 1970s. In September of 1978, they lived in a cabin just south of Sterling on Scout Lake Road, about a half a mile from the Sterling Highway. They were in a wooded rural area, and it was definitely what you would think of when you think of, like, Alaskan wilderness. When I think of Alaska, the only thing I think of is cold. (laughs) It's definitely what other people would think of when you think of Alaskan wilderness, not I Erica. only think, like, how cold I would be if I was there. At the time, Amy was 8 years old and Scott was 13 years old. Their mother, Margaret, was 31 and working as a waitress at a local restaurant. Just recently, a couple months before September of 1978, their father, Roger Fandel, had left them and moved to Arizona with his at the time, girlfriend, Kathy Nichols. So it was just Margaret and the two kids alone out there. However, on September 5th of 1978, Margaret's sister, Kathy, who was 20 years old at the time, had decided to come and live in Alaska with her sister and her niece and nephew. So just to clarify, there's now two Kathy. So there's Kathy Nichols, the girlfriend of Roger, and then there's Kathy, who's Margaret's sister. Correct. Okay. From my interpretation of it, Kathy was moving out there to just kind of help Margaret out in this time and be another adult figure in the kids' lives. As I said earlier, Scott was 13 at the time. He was eager to learn and smart and described as sort of cocky or a jokester by some of the people who knew him. However, everyone says he was really respectful and sweet and cared a lot about Amy. He also cared a lot about motorcycles. He loved to ride and When you see comments from people who knew him as a kid, they all say this as well, that he was very into motorcycles and going out in the wilderness. He had actually just recently passed a wilderness survival course, which I assume is probably somewhat common for kids who would live in Alaska. Amy was described as a sweet, lovable girl. She liked animals, card games, and a lot of the words associated with Amy from people in her life at the time was innocent and sweet. On September 5th, like I said earlier, Kathy arrived in Alaska. After she arrived, Margaret, Kathy, Scott, and Amy all decided to go over to a local bar and restaurant called Good Time Charlie's to get some supper and hang out there. What's interesting about Good Time Charlie's is that it was a bar and restaurant with like video games and foosball and pool But I guess at some point it also was like a porn recording studio, like in the back of the restaurant. Apparently at this time in like Sterling, because of the oil pipelines being implemented, there were a lot of like a rougher crowd around. And a lot of the bars and restaurants in the area would have like prostitution or pornography happening in the restaurants, which is just absolutely like bonkers in my brain because you you don't see that around here unless I'm just missing something. Thing, I guess. So do they didn't do recording, I'm assuming, during like restaurant business hours, right? I assume not, but I actually don't. I have no idea. I do think it's weird, though, that 
children were allowed in this bar <laughs> that there's also being porn like also pornos are being recorded yeah i think it's strange i don't really know how the setup or layout was but i don't even i'm kind of at a loss for words on it honestly i don't even know how to respond because it's just so bizarre around 10 p.m margaret and kathy dropped scott and amy off at home and went back out Margaret and Kathy watched the kids go inside the cabin, turn on the lights. Something to be noted about the cabin at this time is that the lock on the door did not work. After Margaret and Kathy left to go back out, Amy and Scott went over to their friends and neighbors, the Luptons. They were just a couple hundred yards away from the cabin, and there's actually a little path through the woods that Scott and Amy could take to go over to the house. It was Nancy and Bill Lupton that lived at the house with five kids. So Scott and Amy and the kids hung out all the time, especially with being so close. They spent a lot of time together. While they're at the Luptons, Scott and Amy and the kids all just played. And from what Nancy said, actually got a little rambunctious and she ended up sending Scott and Amy back because they're being loud and they had school the next day. Do you know what time they were sent home? I'm not entirely sure what time they ended up sending the kids home, but I feel like I saw somewhere that it was around 11 o'clock p.m. I don't think it was too long after Scott and Amy had arrived, especially if they had school the next day. I can't imagine they were there that late. Probably not. A neighbor passing by Scott and Amy's cabin did report seeing lights on at 11.45 p.m. I don't know if that means much. When the kids were home, they always had the lights on as most kids do i think when i was younger it would just be me and my younger brother i would always have as many lights on as possible just because it was kind of it's kind of a little scary to be home alone sometimes yeah even now i keep like one or two lights on sometimes <laughs> which always you know growing up annoyed the shit out of my mom <laughs> yeah my dad used to yell at us all the time he'd be like why are all the lights on in the house yeah. and it's like well you guys were gone and we got scared what were we supposed to do And the lights being on keep the monsters away. Obviously. (laughs) Margaret and Kathy arrived home somewhere around 2 or 3 a.m. And they did notice that there was water boiling on the stove and a box of macaroni sitting on the counter as well as an open can of tomatoes, which I guess is a snack that Scott really liked and appreciated. Um, Seems like a strange combo to me, but hey. I probably eat stuff that people think is weird, too. The only thing that's acceptable to do with your mac and cheese is to put mustard on top. Sure. (laughs) Sure. Tomatoes? No. A little bit of mustard? Yeah. Sure. (laughs) Yep. I do do actually have a question, though, about what you just said. So when they arrived home, in theory, it was like three-ish to four hours after the kids had arrived home from the Luptons, probably. So was the water boiling still like the water was still in it or the water had been boiled out and it was just a hot pan on the stove from what i know it was just a hot pan of water i don't know how much water was left in it i don't know if they i'm not sure um it was not reported the extent of it because it would seem like it would have kind of like all steamed out and not been a lot of water if it had been on the stove for a long time Mm mm-hmm Yeah, I feel like that could kind of give a little bit of a timeline as to when the kids were trying to make mac and cheese. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. 
Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. Margaret and Kathy did not see the children and I think assumed that they had stayed at the Lupton's house. So they went to bed. The next morning, Margaret left her work around 8.30 a.m. and Kathy got up around noon and they just assumed that the kids had made it to school. Margaret tried to call Amy at school that morning and they told her that Amy did not arrive at school. Do you know what she was calling the school for? Or was she just... I'm not sure. I think she was probably just checking in to make sure they'd went to school since she didn't see them that night or morning. You know what I mean? That was my assumption. After school was out, the Lupton kids came over to the house to see where Scott and Amy were because they had not arrived at school. And this is when Kathy and Margaret really realized something's wrong and they call the police. Police and volunteers come and check out the scene and look around the area, kind of scanning the wilderness, see if they can find any sign of Scott and Amy, but there is zero trace. They find some bullet casings outside the cabin, but it is the Alaskan wilderness. Like, that's not uncommon. People probably were shooting guns up there. Like, it's it was probably fairly normal. So they did not tie that to any connection with Scott and Amy's disappearance. But there's just zero trace of these kids. What it sounds like is Scott and Amy made it home from the Luptons. They're going to make a snack. And at some point during that, something happened where they got taken. That's what makes the most sense to me. What do you think? From what you've described so far, that's kind of what I would think is that something happened and they just, I don't even know. Is there any chance that they would have just walked off on their own? It doesn't seem likely They didn't have a history of doing that before. And also with it being in the Alaskan wilderness, I can't imagine that would have even crossed their minds. Everything seemed like a normal day. When I said like, would they have just walked away? Not as if like they were running away from home, but if they were like trying to walk to go somewhere and then something happened on their walk. But I guess it seems weird that the mac and cheese thing, like that Mm -hmm. it would still be on the stove. How often did Margaret and Kathy, I guess, leave the kids home alone throughout the night? I don't know specifically. It sounds like, though, it wasn't abnormal. I mean, Scott was 13, so he wasn't too young, I don't think, personally. So my interpretation of it is that it was a common thing to happen. Because I was just trying to think if it was like an out-of-the-normal thing and if somebody just happened to know that they were home alone that night or if it was a normal thing and they were like, oh, we can kind of expect... And then they kind of planned it out to come get the kids. Yeah. For my research in this case, it does seem like it was just one of those, like, even though they had the prostitution and the, like, sex trafficking in the area, it seems like it was one of those beliefs where it was nothing bad really happens around here. It seems like with the lock on the door not being fixed and the kids staying home alone and being able to walk freely to their friend's house, it sounds like it was just like a comfortable area, like a trusting area almost, which is a little ironic when you talk about the other stuff going on in this location. But, you know, I think it probably was easy for someone to maybe catch on to a pattern here. The authorities contact Roger, the dad, and he says he had no idea what was going on. Apparently flew to Alaska to assist in the investigation. I don't know a whole lot on that part of it, but they really just kind of hit a wall and were not sure what was going on. There are a couple theories 
with one of them being what we kind of touched on is someone picking up a pattern and going and kidnapping the children. There's thoughts that maybe a person noticed the kids at the bar and restaurant earlier on in the night and then followed them home, saw Kathy and Margaret drop them off and kind of lied in wait until their moment to take them, which this kind of thing is like, you know that wrong place, wrong time abductions kind of happen, but it seems... It's hard for me to believe this one, I guess, specifically because it seems too of the moment, like, I, I feel like something more would have had to have been planned, because they wait until the kids likely come back from the Luptons and wait a little bit and then take them, which I don't know why they wouldn't have abducted the kids before they even left to go to the Luptons' house, because that increases the chance of Margaret and Kathy being back and catching them. It does, but also maybe they needed to build up some courage to go and... I mean, I've never tried, but I don't think that kidnapping two kids is super easy. Well, that's the thing, too. It's like, it raises the question, is it one person, two people that are abducting? However, I I have read multiple times and heard multiple times that Scott was very protective of Amy. And I think he probably would have followed along and been complacent if it meant maybe she's not going to get hurt right now. I think it also asks the question, was it somebody that they know that they felt comfortable just going with? That was a beautiful segue into the next theory. And that is that Roger was involved and abducted the kids. There's talk that maybe he wasn't happy with Margaret and her lifestyle and he wanted the kids to be away from her. He is kind of portrayed as this like, aggressive kind of stern burly man who was in with some rough crowds he was a part of that pipe fitters union for the oil line and from what i've gathered it seems like there is a lot of tension within that union whereas he could have maybe made the wrong people mad he was never officially named as a suspect in the case though were they ever able to because you said he lived out of state. So were they ever able to determine if he was in the state of Alaska during that time? I assume the police looked into that. I'm pretty sure he, because he was living in Arizona at the time. I do know, though, that there was other family of his in Alaska at the time. So then it's, if this is what happened, I think it would have been other family being involved with it as well. Specifically with the theory of Roger being involved, this has erupted on a couple Facebook pages, Reddit pages. There seems to be a lot of tension tied to this theory. So next week, when you guys tune in, we actually have an interview with Terry, who is the uncle of Scott and Amy, and he runs their missing Facebook page. So he has more insight to the family aspect of this story, and you'll get a better feel from what he's saying than what I'm saying, I think. And that's just specifically because I don't know their family. I don't know the mechanics of it. And so I don't want to give away too much in this theory. And I think I want to leave a little bit more for Terry to tell you guys really what's 
going on in his eyes and what he has perceived through the past like 40 years of this case because it really is a cold case it happened in 1978 it's so long ago and they still have zero answers and what's crazy about this and a lot of cases like it it's so weird for like especially two kids to go missing and you just find no trace of them anywhere like there is no blood no clothing no remains just nothing found no evidence that could help answer any of the questions. So was any of the kids' stuff missing? Not that I came across. It seems they just disappeared without a trace and left no evidence at all, except for maybe the boiling pot is weird. Something I did come across that I want to mention too, when Margaret and Kathy got home, all the lights were off in the house, which I know we talked about the lights a little bit earlier, but they thought it was kind of strange that Scott and Amy would have turned off every light. But we do know that the car passing by earlier reported lights being on at 11.45 p.m. I think it would be a little weird if the kids just shut all the lights off. But I I guess I don't don't know. Because do you leave the lights on when you go to bed, even as a kid? I mean, personally, I did. We actually still leave a lamp on now, too. Just so, like, when you get up in the middle of the night, you can kind of see where you're going. I don't know that we ever really did we had like a few night lights in the hallway i guess that just so you could see the stairs because my brother and i used to wipe out on the it was like it's like three steps up we used to wipe out on those all the time so we had little night lights in the hallway right there but i don't think we ever really left a light on so i guess it just if it was weird for them then that is weird that they shut all the lights off but that kind of gives you a little bit more of a time frame if you know that like 11 45 the lights were all on mm-hmm and then by the time they get home, you said between two and three? Yeah. The lights are all off. So that gives you like a two hour time frame. Here's the thing. We have a couple of scenarios here that could have happened. I'm processing if it was Roger who had his family involved and they decided to take the kids. They would have went in, taken the kids, not taken any of their stuff, left the water on the stove, and then turned off the lights as they left. But if you're trying to make it look a certain way, you wouldn't take their stuff either. So I feel like it can all get flipped either way. Okay, look at a couple different possibilities. If it was a sex trafficking ring and they were just kidnapping their kids for that, then they probably wouldn't have taken any of their stuff. They probably would have just been like, you have the clothes on your back and that's it. Or even just a random abduction as yes, well. Yes, a random abduction. They probably wouldn't take anything. You don't need anything. If it was Roger, then you probably wouldn't take anything because you would look a little suspicious. Yeah. And if you were planning on keeping the kids for your own and like having helping them grow up and raising them as your own or whatever your plan is, you probably would just prepare yourself to know that you're going to have to start buying them everything they need. So why take some starter stuff, you know? I know. It's interesting. The fact that everything is still there, I think raises more questions it does and i but i think you can twist it like you said however you want if a couple of things were missing i would almost be a little bit more led to believe like if a toy or two or like a jacket were missing i'd be like maybe the kids just did just walk off for some like to go somewhere for something but since nothing's missing it does lead me to believe more that somebody did come in and they're like are right, you leaving come with us There was also another theory going around about some carnival workers in the area as well. So Margaret had a couple friends who were carnies and would come in and out of season to the area. And they had visited 
the Kenai Peninsula late August and actually stayed with Margaret. So people sometimes look at them and try to tie them in as well. There was a witness who saw a black sedan speeding on the road next to the cabin the night of the disappearance. And they saw the sedan pull into another driveway and turn off their headlights and then like turn around and go and speed off. And this vehicle matched the vehicle of one of the Carnies or friends of Margaret's. And when they interviewed them, they had said that they actually did drive out to Scout Lake Road to see if Margaret was home and saw that she wasn't and then left. So that kind of explained it, but it also puts them in the area at the time of the disappearance. I, yeah, it just seems weird. I don't know. I guess I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> There's, I feel like so many options and I haven't found like, like a lot of them are kind of plausible. Another person that kind of comes up too. His name, and we talk about him in our interview with Terry as well, so I'm not going to get too deep into it. We don't really have a lot of information. He goes by Mr. W. I don't, whatever. But he was apparently part of like the sex trafficking ring and had some involvements in that area with that and in Anchorage, which was kind of nearby. And he had supposedly offered a $5,000 reward for information on finding Scott and Amy. I don't know if he was just like friends with Margaret or what his connection is, though. It seems weird to me. Also, he's the one, and I've told Erica this story a lot. We've talked about all this a lot, but he's the one for you guys who don't know. He opened up like a motel on a new property and didn't want his car anymore, so he buried it. Which is so strange to me. Why would you bury a car unless you have something to hide? Yeah, what he said about it was that he just got tired of the car and had to put it somewhere. So he buried it. That's what I do with things I don't want to Yeah, it seems like the most work to have get rid of a car that you don't want. And it does seem, I thought it seemed sketchy. I don't know if it's in any way related to this case. But like, it seems like something's going on. It seems like he has something to hide. It just, it seems sketchy yeah like burying something seems so finite and then you want to i don't know it just doesn't seem right there's a reason people bury bodies it's because they don't want them found so what we know is that scott and amy were never found and the family or at least some of the family is still looking for answers terry specifically i know is looking for answers and closure the charlie project does have pages for both Scott and Amy with age progression photos to what they would look like at different ages, which we will obviously post on our social media for you guys to see as well. If you guys have any information on the disappearance of Scott and Amy, the investigating agency is the Alaska State Troopers, and their phone number is 907-262-4453. I urge you guys to go to the Charlie Project pages for both Scott and Amy, and also to the Facebook page that is run by Terry, Scott and Amy's uncle. It's just called Scott and Amy Fandel Missing. There's a lot of information on there that we did not dive into today. And there's going to be a lot more information next week with our interview with Terry about this case. So stay tuned and listen in next week for that special interview. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. 
You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 